Hello and welcome to today's episode of Timeline Podcast Anywhere. My name is Sarah Esuf and I'm thrilled to be joined on the podcast today by Sunil Patel, CEO of Whisper Productions. Sunil is well known in our industry for his dynamic forward-thinking leadership style. Sunil gives us a very honest and interesting insight into how he broke into the industry and how he came to form Whisper with Jake Humphreys and David Coulthard. Not the most likely trio on paper. Whisper have been awarded the best place to work for five years in a row by Broadcast Magazine. And after speaking and listening to Sunil, it's clear to see why. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Sunil. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, We're thrilled to have you on as a guest. Um, So, yeah, thank you for taking the time out of your day. No, not at all. Thanks. um, Thanks for asking me. I'm looking forward to talking about um, Whisper and Timeline. And yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. So, of course, we do want to talk to you about the Whisper Group. Um, There's a lot to unpack there. But before we do, I'd like to ask you a little bit more perhaps about you as a person, Uh, as a child growing up. Did you have anybody in your family who was perhaps in the television industry? Were you uh, a known storyteller? Like, where where did the interest come from? No, look, uh, I I grew up. Mum and dad were um, both um, like most uh, Indian parents, where they ran a newspaper shop. Um, I, I guess that instilled um, a work ethic in me in in terms of watching my dad get up ridiculously early, uh, finish ridiculously late. I, I had a paper round from a very young age, so that sort of instilled the work ethic. But in terms of the love um, for content and um, TV, actually, it came through the love of sport and my passion for sport. So whenever I uh, was at home, I wouldn't be necessarily playing on a computer game or a console. I'd be just glued to, to watching whatever was on the day, whether it was test match cricket, match of the day, um, whatever the olympics uh, at the times uh, world cups all that sort of stuff resonates with me so clearly i can remember sitting there glued mm. to the box and then as i went through my kind of early life i realized i was never going to be a professional sportsman um as much as i tried and i thought actually how can i how can i get into something that is going to take me as close to sport as possible and actually i was very lucky i went to a state school called teddington um, and they were one of the only schools in the country that did a TV GCSE. There was two schools in the t- in the country at the time that did a TV GCSE, and I just thought I'll, I'll I'll pick that as one of my options. And then the reality struck that actually I I really enjoyed this. And it didn't seem like hard work <laughs> uh, in comparison yeah. to um, cramming for English, maths, or science. So I, I kind of sort of fell in love with that, and then kind of it dawned on me that if I could combine something like TV within sport then that could be the career for me and um, it was a bit of a hard sell to my parents like I said it came from um, a traditional Indian background where your parents would be expecting you to go into law or be a doctor Mm. or be an accountant as my brother was in the end Um, but they were always questioned what are you doing what are you doing why are you going into TV Um, and it's only been in later life that they've finally acknowledged it wasn't a bad decision. I think that's um, true for a lot of parents because, you know, unless it's a specific industry that they're aware of, you know, you know, working in a hospital, working in a bank, television. I mean, even, you know, for, for me, when I wanted to choose a degree at university, is that a real degree? Is that going to, are you really going to have a career out of that? But I think now, um, you know, definitely like the future generations, 
it's almost switched. It's like you can make a lot of money in this, for example, if that's what you're worried about or, you know, um, you know, if you're worried about uh, career progression or the opportunities out there, they're just growing. So that's quite interesting that you had that connection at a young age at sort of GCSE level that that was you already had a career in mind. So you don't often hear that from like a 16 year old, really. So from there, did you you went on to did you go to university? Yeah, I, well, I went to college um, and I studied TV and uh, uh, journalism and photography at college, at Richmond College. And that was a BTEC. Again, I decided not to do A-levels. That, that wasn't the thing for me in terms of sitting down and, and revising and uh, exams yeah. just didn't work for me. And I think that's really important for kids coming through that, that uh, schooling and um, the academic um, way is not always the right way Um for some people, that sort of environment just doesn't work, and it wasn't great for me. I found that quite difficult, and I found it quite stressful. So, having the uh, opportunity to do a BTEC where it was much more um, practical, much more hands-on, assessment-based, project-based, I was in my element, and I really found a groove at, um, at college, and I really kind of knuckled down. From there, I actually went on to university, and I did TV and radio at university in Salford, and. Again, I think that's a. This is really an interesting point for people coming into the industry that university isn't the only way to get into the industry. Mm. And actually, I would, I, I if I went back, I'd probably think twice about going to university. And especially now, given all the costs associated to it, if you can find a way into the industry at an early age, I would, I would, um, I would highly recommend getting straight into the industry rather than going to university. Whilst I learned a lot about life and being independent. Um, I don't think I, I picked up much knowledge um, about my profession at university. That was all done through college, really, and school. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you that university isn't the be-all and end-all in our industry uh, because there's so much sort of like hands-on experience that you sort of need day-to-day that it's best just to sort of try and get your foot in the door, whether that's as a runner or an assistant or a coordinator or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, a lot of these companies, uh, broadcasting companies that are based in London and London is very expensive if you don't have parents or family that live nearby to sort of live with. So this is something I think as an industry as a whole, we need to start um, looking at. We we know that obviously the cost of living in London for everybody is tough, but imagine being on quite a low salary um, with little to no qualifications, um, trying to get your foot in the door must be quite daunting for anyone sort of thinking about getting into television or into production. What sort of advice would you give them, uh, Sun Hill, for, um, to, you know, obviously not to be put off for just sort of going for well, a job? I guess it's difficult because it's been so long since I uh, entered the industry and everything's changed to the yeah. point that... yeah. There's so much more opportunity now. People can pick up a camera. You can, f- everyone can film with their phone. Um, everyone can upload. Everyone can edit. Um, so the, the tools are there for people to become content makers um, and creators. Um, I guess from my perspective, when I was leaving university, I actually put more effort into contacting uh, potential employers. So I knew six months out when before graduating that. I hadn't put everything into my degree, but I knew my degree wasn't going to be the be-all and end-all of me getting a job. But if I could get to kind of my CV to as many people as early as possible before everyone else hit um, the market, I'd have a chance. And I I just really pushed hard on that. And 
um, it sort of paid off. So I guess the lesson from that is just you've got to hammer every opportunity you get to get in front of people, uh, get your CV across, get your work experience and, and find those opportunities. And uh, I think you just have to be relentless. Uh, if you really want to work in TV, if you really want to work in an area of TV, whether that be drama, sport or comedy, you've got to find a way and, and just be relentless and ruthless in, in going for it and making that your kind of goal. Yeah, absolutely. So you finish university, you're handing out CVs everywhere. <laughs> uh, and so what was your big break? What was your first paid gig? Um, well, I remember doing work experience at the Brit Awards in 96. So that was my first taste of television, which... That's pretty um, yeah. cool. In the 90s as well, when the Brit Awards was actually... It was a ridiculous know, year. It was the Oasis raucous. year. It was uh, Michael Jackson, Jarvis Cocker... Um, it, it was Incredible. a it was a hell of a show, and my that was my first experience of TV. And I thought, wow, this is this is what it's like. Um, little little, yeah. little did I know, in in three years' time, I would be uh, driving up the M1 and doing a, an OB at <laughs> said rainy town, uh, watching Division Two football with it back in the day. But um, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, absolutely. Swings my my first paid job was at IMG as an intern, um, the back end of the nineties. And it was uh, working on a documentary about the South African rugby team and uh, how they were going through kind of the change that they were going through as a nation, but also as a sporting setup. Um, and it was it was really interesting because it was all about the quota system, which is uh, divided the country and um, divided opinion. And it was just really interesting to see how that was put together. But from there, I, I kind of went through various jobs at IMG. Um, and it was actually at IMG when they first trialled um, TV on the internet and that was probably back in 2000 and I remember saying to a friend oh, that will wow. never that'll never take off no one's ever going to watch com- oh, sport no. <laughs> or TV on, on a computer should have had shares yeah. um, and unfortunately it was, it, it was it was so innovative but it was ahead of its time and it didn't quite work yeah. but um, fair play to everyone involved in that but uh, I, I experienced that um, and then I went to ITV, worked on um, ITV Digital, um, and from there had time at Sky, but eventually settled down at the BBC, actually, and that, i say, was probably my home for, for the longest period uh, of my career before I, I set up Whisper. So, it, and I mean, I've been doing a little bit of research on your LinkedIn profile and other such things. Uh, so am I right in thinking that it was at the BBC where... You met uh, Jake and David, your your business partners, with Whispers. Yeah, right? um, but actually, the the interesting thing about Jake, I'd already worked with Jake on the TV on the internet project, which was called Now TV at the time. Um, so Jake was oh, brought right, in to okay. pre- uh, present some of the sports stuff, some of the children's stuff. Mm. Um, so we'd worked together in the uh, sort of early two thousand, and then we both found ourselves at the BBC. Jake was. Um, a children's TV presenter at the time whilst I was a sports producer, AP. Um, And then Jake came into the BBC Sport Department and started doing Football Focus and um, Final Score Reports and uh, his star was rising. And then eventually uh, the BBC won the Formula One from ITV um, Mm. the year after Lewis won his first title in 2009 was the first year we did it. Now, I remember Niall Sloan, who was the head of sport um, or head of football at the time, put his hand up. Uh, sorry, he asked us in a meeting and he said, 
uh, does anyone work, want to work in Formula One? We've, we've just won the rights. Who wants to put their hand up and do this? And I remember looking around the room and hardly anyone put their hand up. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? You've got the opportunity to pen- yeah. potentially go to Melbourne, Monaco, Singapore, all these great destinations. You just never thought you'd get an opportunity to go, let alone uh, work on, on a massive high-profile sport like Formula One. What was going on there then? Do you think it was the overwhelming like task ahead? I, I or... don't know. I, don't, no, I, I think it came back to pay. Like, we'll talk about passion, but um, passion for what you're doing. I, don't, I just don't think there was much passion mm. in that group of people for Formula One. Um, and I just thought, wow, what an opportunity. Um, and what an opportunity to take the sport on. Um, the BBC yeah. were throwing everything at it. They were really got behind it. Um, and then when I learned that Jake was going to be brought in to do uh, be the presenter, I just thought, oh wow, this is a great time to to pick up with Jake again and 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 give it yep. a go. And and actually, the the few people that did come on board eventually were really strong kind of people. And the team was just one of those teams that just came together, and it just blew me away. Kind of some of the talent we had in the room and and actually the output and how we reinvented Formula One coverage in that year was probably something I look back on my career as one of the greatest things we ever did as a team. Oh, that's, that's, that is really inspiring to hear. It's like that lightning in a bottle effect, isn't it? It's like everything came together at the right time, all the right sort of people. And yeah, I mean, the legacy uh, speaks for itself. So just while you touched on that, one of your proudest moments, are there any other highlights in your career that you would touch on? Okay, look, everything matters. If you don't care about things, mm. it's just going to show, particularly in a job where we're judged on output and, and everyone sees what you do. So everything matters. But I think the ones that feel a little bit different are the ones that now, as, as Whisper, where you plan and strategize for. So we, when we, when we kind of got to Whisper um, and we started Whisper, we wanted to do the Formula One as an independent production company. Um, so we started very early working with Formula One teams, Red Bull, Williams, some of the partners in the sport, Shell, UBS, Hugo Boss. And with Jake and David on board and my experience in the sport, I always knew that once it, once that tender came out to the independent market, we'd have a chance. Not a major chance, but we'd have a chance. And it was a bit of a Hail Mary. It was quite a small company at the time. And I just thought, if we keep doing these little things and building them up, and as we talk about marginal gains, just keep kind of working in the industry, get to be known as the company that does great content within Formula One, we'd have a chance to uh, win that tender. Um, and thankfully, it all sort of played out. So those projects where you strategically identify what you're going to do and what you're going to go for and how you're going to do it, when it plays out, that is a wonderful feeling. It, it, yeah, <laughs> I guess it equates to what I, I was dreaming of as a kid of playing cricket for England or India or scoring a goal uh, at Wembley FA Cup final exactly goal. it's That's kind it. of you put so much effort and you come so obsessed with kind of the output the, the the outcome that when you get it it's just a it's a magical feeling so I guess the strategic wins the creative wins where again Formula One we talked about what as a team what we did um, on the BBC in 2009 when we took it on from ITV how that reshaped how live sport and, and particularly Formula live Formula One coverage was covered um, and then NFL, I think it, when we took the NFL on again as an independent production company for the BBC, um, and that was our first big gig that we'd won, um, how we reshaped how that sport was presented to the UK public was um, just mind-blowing. And, and 
kind of, I guess, looking back on it now, several years later, that would be definitely one of my proudest moments um, as Whisper. Um, and that, that was interesting because we weren't even invited into pitch for that because we were so small. So we had to fight to be allowed in. I think the tender had even closed and they gave us a weekend to scrabble something together. And from that, we were just kind of relentless right? wow. in, in, in trying to convert that. And that was the start of Whisper sort of really, really taking off. Um, and then I think the third element of uh, projects that really matter are the ones that impact positive change. And we talk about at Whisper using our platform to impact positive change. So um, we have a, a, a really, really amazing team of people here. Um, we create content on many platforms. Um, and I always talk about using our, our, our opportunity and the platform we have to impact positive change. So productions like the talk where we we co-funded a documentary um with channel four off the back of the the, uh, the george floyd death um a couple of years back the paralympics that we've um worked on together with timeline actually the tokyo paralympics pyeongchang and beijing um and then all the work we do in women's sport so whether that's women's six nations wsl w series uh women's cricket the list goes on now those sports yeah. where we're producing and we impact positive change, create role models, uh, create opportunities for women um, or people from a, a background that don't often get the uh, opportunity to work in those sports on air, off air, that that really matters. So you've got that mix of sort of commercial, creative and kind of impact um, projects that, that, yeah. that really make a difference. So speaking about the impact, I'm going to quote you, Sunil, now. This is something that you said. And this was in a uh, professional capacity. It wasn't off record or anything. So um, you said, it's always nice to have recognition for the work we do, but we have always said that the people are the most important asset that we have. We take on team members who are eager to learn and hungry to grow, and we like to reward talent and hard work with more opportunities. So the team that you've built, that's got to be one of the greatest achievements, right? So I was on your website and you have a section on there, our team, and it just keeps going and going and going. We're about 200 globally now um, and obviously many more freelancers. And it's really important. We call out the freelancers and like yourselves, Timeline, use many freelancers. They're so important to this industry mm. and often get overlooked. Um but are integral to everything we do. As, as much as the team members, the staff members, the fixed-term contracts people we have in. Um, and, it, yeah, it's it's like, I, I guess it's like building a sporting dynasty. Um, it's about bringing in individuals and making them gel and making them collectively believe in what we're trying to do as a, as a, as a team, basically. So we've, we've been very kind of, I guess, aggressive, ruthless, um, about bringing the right type of people into the business. Um, you don't always get it right. And I think one of the learnings we had pretty early on is you're not going to make everyone happy and not everyone will f enjoy it at Whisper. Um, but it's very important that when it doesn't work out, you, you kind of make that move and, and move people on um, if it's not working for either party because bad apples, negativity just breeds. Um, and I've always talked about having yeah. a no dick policy at Whisper, uh, and we we really stand firm on that. That the expectation when you walk in the door here is that you can do your job. There's lots of people in this industry that can do their job. It's about coming in and being a decent person as well, and and kind of 
being in an environment where people want to work with you and feel comfortable. Absolutely. So the no bad apple um, phrase that you just used, that's basically protecting the team, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I, I guess uh, as a CEO, that, that falls under my watch, but I have to take a lot of, uh, I have to give a lot of credit to David Coulthard, fellow co-founder and, and Jake, who, who absolutely backed me on that policy. Um, but mm-hmm. I learned and we learned as a business a lot from David. David was an ex-Formula One racing driver, um, drove for Williams back in the day, took over when Ayrton Senna um, sadly passed away. David took his seat, sort of went through Williams, McLaren, Red Bull, mm-hmm. and we applied a lot of his learnings to production and running a business and running a, a sport production business at the time. Um, we didn't get everything right, and not everything applies. There's certain things that David says and does that just uh, they you just can't apply them because we don't have the budget, we don't have the kind of we don't have that constant measurement that you have in football or cricket or in his case Formula One, where you race every weekend or every other weekend, and the checkered flag goes. And if you're first on the podium, that is the result. Mm. Our business is ongoing, yeah. so it's much harder to to acknowledge wins and losses um and it's it's an evolution yeah there isn't that tan you can't it's not tangible is it um when it's a constant a constant uh yeah it's not like i guess maybe at the end of each production could you review that or is that we all know that just doesn't happen this industry moves so Mm. fast and you guys see it from kind of moving from one OB location to another. No sooner are you rigged for one, you're on your way to another. And, and yes, we could spend more time and we should spend more time collectively debriefing on what doesn't doesn't work as opposed to patting ourselves on the back. And we do we do try and do that regularly at Whisper, but we, we could do a lot more of that. But, um, yeah, learning from, learning from what sports teams do and in sports individuals do has been a big thing for us. Okay, so you met Jake, well, you already knew Jake and now David. And so how did you come together to then form Whisper? So, yeah, you're right. I'd already worked with Jake. Jake had been um, picked to, to present Formula One. And actually, one of the, the big moves that the BBC made was bringing in David Coulthard. He'd just retired uh, the previous year and it was his first year out of the sport. And he came in as the lead pundit um, and co-commentator. Um, and... I started steadily working with David and and truth be told, we didn't really hit it off um, to start with because I just didn't get his level of operation. Um, The way he worked, the way he thought, it was just so blunt and kind of to the point that I'd just never seen in TV. I'd never seen anyone like that around. Um, But over time, I learned that actually what he was trying to do was this whole mentality of tell me what's not working instead of what is working. And that was just really a really hard concept in TV at the time because it was so much about aren't we great, isn't this great, instead of what can we make better. Um, So over time, myself and Dave and Jake got very close. Um, The BBC Sport Department was moving up to Manchester and that really forced my hand to make a decision of whether I moved up to Manchester or whether I stayed in London and actually looking back on it I don't know how I made the decision but I decided to stay in London I didn't really have a freelance network and I was going to give it a go as a freelancer I remember a conversation with Jake uh, in the car park in the compound at Monza where the Italian (laughs) Grand Prix was held Um, and it was on the Saturday after qualifying we just come off air and we started talking about the fact that I wasn't going to go to, to Manchester, as many of my other colleagues were. And 
what do we what did we think about starting up a production company um because what was happening is a lot of the partners in the formula 1 teams were coming to me and saying look we love what you do on the bbc can you do it for us um and at the time i couldn't because we were travelling around the world and i had a job and we just thought well, actually with jake's yeah. star power and, and and my experience of producing could we set up a small production company that just serviced a lot of the clients within formula 1 so we we that was it we just gave it a go and then david found out about it and was quite upset I and mean, he said to us why have you not why have you not asked me to join the the business and we're like well why, why did it? Why hadn't you? Was it you didn't think he would be interested? Well, let, or, let's put it pretty it was, simply. Why would a, a multi-million-pound Formula One driver join a business with two people that had nothing going for them, other than one's a TV presenter <laughs> and one's a TV producer? <laughs> uh, so we we just didn't think who make business decisions in a car park. Exactly, exactly <laughs> that. Um, so, uh, but then David said to us, "Look, I, I see there's lots of potential in this industry. I'm not." not professing to know anything about TV, but I know we can sharpen up TV um, and TV production. Um, so we were like, absolutely, let's let's do it. Um, so David came on board and um, kind of when my, when my, I told my friends, they were just blown away. They were like, why would he want to work with you? <laughs> um, and me and Jake couldn't really believe it. But that, that was the start of Whisper and we just went from strength to strength there. Indeed, you have gone from strength to strength. Uh, so, 2010. So, you are now in your well, in your in your twelfth yep. year. And um, I mean, I mean, I know it's hard to summarise because it's been twelve years. But what were these moves? How did you? How did you? Obviously, everyone would have known you as oh, they're the Formula One guys. How did you prove otherwise? We're, we're more than that. It was tough. It was tough because you do get, as you say, you got pigeonholed. You were well. You only do small branded content. I remember talking to a a friend who was running a sport department of a major channel at the time and you'd go in and talk and we're like well we don't trust you <laughs> you're just a small production mm. company you're not, you're not even a production company you're two or three people trying to make content and you'd get laughed out a little bit and then um we knew we could do it it's pretty obvious there's so many people around that if you actually bring people together there, there's no doubt that another company could just set up tomorrow and sort of pull the best in the industry together and, and they would have a company that would be very successful. And we knew that at the time. So we had to then go out and find the people and, and try and pull it all together. And um, But there was still a, a kind of historic, uh, res not resentment, but a historic um, nervousness from broadcasters in particular to go with new companies new startups and it was traditional players very good people that have been around for years the IMGs the Sunset and Vines who had done a brilliant job but there wasn't many other options in the market at the time and we just thought well why don't we be one of those options and we didn't really get a look in but then I remember the Channel 4 uh, Channel 4 was started something called the Growth Fund and we thought actually if we can kind of become a Channel 4 production company if we can kind of show to the market if channel 4 trust us then there's no reason why the bbc shouldn't trust us or itv or channel 5 etc so we we um we bought channel 4 and they took a minority stake in the business which again had so many people around me saying what on earth are you doing why are you giving away a sizable percentage of your business to someone else um and my answer was well 
I think by having Channel 4 with us, we are going to grow and it's going to give the market confidence in us. This is, it's just, it's so inspiring to hear, like, two guys in the car park, let's set up a production company, F1 megastar decides to work with you. I think it's important that you, or I, certainly acknowledge, certainly Jake and David, um, having two people around me that believed in me, um, two people that were already successful in their own field believing in me gave me so much confidence in myself. And actually, I always struggled with being confident in what I did and, and second-guessing what I was doing. But with Jake and David, even now, 12 years later since starting Whisper, when I get in a room with them, get on a call with them, which happens pretty much every other day because they're still absolutely involved in the business, the, the sense of positivity and can-do off the conversation I have with them is just unbelievable. And that they are so they have been so integral in, in my growth as an individual and our growth as a business. So massive credit to those mm. two. Um, and again, that, having people around you that believe, instead of knocking you, and I think there's loads of people in this industry that are happy to knock someone. Oh, yeah, tear strips off of you. They're, they're building you up yeah. and giving you that self-belief. Absolutely, and they've done that and they've been brilliant. And But also looking at people like Danny, I remember... Um, doing the World Cup uh, in 2006 with Danny just before he went off and, and set up Timeline. Um, and I just looked at, uh, looked at what Danny had done with Timeline and I was just like, wow, my God, what, one, what an amazing guy, what an amazing story. And all I saw was hard work. I saw relentless hard yeah. work. Uh, and it's infectious, isn't it? You see something like that and you think, plants a seed in yourself. Danny was exceptionally talented and still is exceptionally talented. He's a massive innovator in the business. Um, and a technical genius but his work ethic was just uh, yeah I can match your work ethic um, might not be there technically but if I can work as hard as Danny and Danny's made it then that that, that would give me um, kind of comfort that this is doable and, and again I had a friend my best friend was an accountant and he set up an accountancy firm and I just saw the, the hard work again my dad mm-hmm. kind of opening the shop at sort of five thirty, six o'clock yeah. in the morning shutting at seven seven days a week that work ethic and that, that drive um, was what made me think, well, if I work hard and I get lucky, this could work. That's the thing with success. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, wow, it's it's happened overnight. Well, you've done that in such a short space of time. It's like the work that goes into it and, uh, you know, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the, the sleepless nights, you know, balancing your family life, all of these things. I talk about um, compromise, what you're prepared to compromise and what you have to mm. compromise uh, in order to make it and this isn't right for everyone who's kind of gone off and started their own business or, or succeeded in what they're doing but it's often what you you have to compromise and what you're prepared to compromise that that is the key as much as the hard work is because I'm sure we've all been there but you're you can't go to a wedding you can't go to a party you can't go to a night out you can't kind of go to a social function or see your kids or whatever it may be it's it's those sorts of things you, you often that happen on that journey and um yeah i've had to give up quite a bit and as have other people on this journey so um yeah credit to those people that have done that and people that they have around them that let them do that so you touched on briefly um the relationship with uh dan mcdonald who's the ceo of timeline television uh, for those listening who aren't aware, um, Danny is a name and he's known as to his friends. So how did you first meet Dan? 
Um, well, look, first and foremost, I, I remember being at BBC Sport. Dan had been at, BBC, I think, BBC OBs, as it was called back in the day, um, and worked his way through. And I remember doing lots of things like Wimbledon, the Open, um, England football internationals. Um, and Danny would often be in the truck um, running an EVS or overseeing the overseeing the um, truck, basically. And I was an AP and I always kind of looked at Danny and he always had the answer. If you ask the question, you'd always know what the answer was when it came to sort of the, the the technical kind of background to television. And I was just in awe of him. And you thought, wow, this guy really knows what he's doing. And and beyond that, he you always had a sense of he knew what was next. He knew what was coming around, whether it was the tapeless replays on EVS, etc., versus kind of old school sort of tape replays. The guy was just ahead of his time on everything. And um, you talk about him being infectious. He was infectious in that love for what he was doing. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of had nothing but respect for him at the time. And then he then went off and set up timelines, stayed at the BBC for a couple of years. And when we started up Whisper, I remember he was just so supportive of helping us and we were so small it would be like oh we just need a little edit and he'd help us set up an edit in our, our small office basically we had a Ealing Studios alongside Timeline and it just instilled how important partners are in your journey as a business mm. um, and finding the right partners who you trust who support you in the tough times as as, as much as kind of celebrate the wins and the, and the success it's kind of when it's tough and when there's not so much money on the table um, and Timeline have always been there for us in that respect. And, um, yeah, massive, massive thanks to, to the team at Timeline for, for helping us when we were pretty much a two-man band, three-man band. What other future projects are you excited to be working on with Timeline? I guess, I mean, Paralympics has probably taken up a lot of the space in your mind at the moment. We've been lucky enough to do two Paralympic Games with Timeline. Um, we do WSL, Women's Six Nations, um, cricket in the West Indies. Um, oh, yeah. Just after yeah. that, Formula One. Um, work with Timeline and that, um, W Series. So there's a lot of lot of work we do with you guys. Um, and it's always about, look, what is next? And actually, what can we innovate on next? What's the next piece of innovation that we can kind of work on together? So it's great that, obviously, Whisper looked to Timeline for innovative tech and, and things like that. But we really look to Whisper to see how we can improve on a whole, a whole range of things, but especially the culture and um, the culture that you adopt at Whisper and, and especially for your people. So, for example, um, winning five years in a row, the best place to work in the broadcasting industry, that's got to feel good. I, I think it's a, it comes it comes back to that kind of, you've got to work hard at it. Nothing happens just mm-hmm. by chance. And we have worked hard. We've listened to our team. Um, I always talk about we don't get everything right, but we, we when we're challenged with something that's not working, we try and fix it. And we won't we won't kind of agree with everything that gets fed back. But ultimately, if people were willing to communicate and feel listened to, it's quite easy to impact change on that front. Um, so, yeah, we've done a lot of work over the years of just listening, implementing, learning from others as well. You talk about... Is it, there often can be a lot of arrogance that you know best and you do things kind of your way and that's the only way. But actually what we try and do is listen to, look at the rest of the industry, whether it's other genres, other sport production companies, and in fact other businesses, other other industries, and, and look at how, uh, how are they doing in 
food and beverage or how are they doing it in travel and tourism and, and try and cherry pick things that work in other industries and try and port them into ours. That's a, um, that's a gr- I love that, the looking into other industries. That's, that's the innovation I'm talking about, Sonny. That is, <laughs> that's, you know, because you do, sometimes you feel like, well, should we just look at our competitors? Should we look at our collaborators? Stepping outside of that into other industries seems like an obvious thing to do. And maybe to you, you're like, oh, yeah, everyone does that, don't they? But they really don't. And that is, I'm going to write that one down. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other element, so, I mean, the, the team is crucial, the diversity in that team, um, the ambition, again, being relentless and, and having a sense of fun. Um, I talk about, I actually posted the other day that, we we all spend or, or used to spend uh, in, they're very different now with the hybrid working but used to spend more time in the office than you did at home you, so you've got to create a culture and an environment where people want to come and, and yeah. want to come and work and um, it can't just be it can't just be done by buying a Nando's every other week we, we tried that and it, it suddenly just lost kind of all the impact so you've got to work on every element of how you onboard people, how you offboard people, how you communicate, how many times you communicate a day, how many different ways you communicate. Um, sort of sending an email out to the whole company is not going to land the message. You've got to do it in different ways. Mm. Uh, different people respond differently to communication. So, um, yeah, there's, it's, there's a whole suite of things on that front, really. But, yeah, try and make it a fun environment that people want to come to work. So do you do... And, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't, but do you guys do like team days out or like um, like team building, things like that? Or are you two, because obviously you're 200 people and you're spread across a variety of countries and locations. Um, we, pre-pandemic, we did a lot of that. Um, we were actually going into the pandemic, we were 60, 70 people. Uh, so it was a lot easier to do that sort of those team events. And mm. it, it's much harder now. So it's much more conventional in that it's a... It's a Christmas party. It's a summer party. Yeah. Um, what what we do do, and we're about to do, is a, a whisper day where we get everyone together and we we just run through some of the feedback that people have had in the business. Uh, we have a keynote speaker to sort of in, inspire, whether it's about diversity, um, creativity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We play kind of the new showreel. We announce certain new policies. Um, so we we sort of engage people in a different way. I think kind of going out and paintballing for six hours is not necessarily going to build team spirit. I think kind of getting people to buy into what we stand for is more important than maybe shooting someone in the foot. (laughs) Everyone in the team has a role to do and impacts Mm -hmm. the output and whether it's the financial results or the creative results. Um, And recently when we were were up for some awards, we, we made a whole kind of real conscious effort to make sure whether it was the facilities team, the IT team, the human resources, uh, some of the juniors that worked in the team. I, I really believe that everyone has their part to play. If the office management team are not on top of their game and the office isn't functioning or the IT is not working or the HR is not working, the whole system falls over. Um, mm-hmm. And far too often in television and production, the plaudits go to the producers, the directors, let alone kind of the production management that, that are often forgotten about or the technical um, so we, we try and make a massive effort to sort of reward success as a team and as a company and not necessarily about certain roles and individuals. That's right. So when you win those RTS awards or the BAFTAs, or <laughs> I mean, your accolades are... We, have, we haven't won a BAFTA yet. You've been nominated, but, right? 
We've been nominated. Come um, on, but, that's uh, basically a win, isn't it? But, yeah, <laughs> but that's the whole team. Every single person put into that, winning that award, and it shouldn't just be the people that are there to collect. Um, 100%. So that's, that's fantastic. So you touched on uh, diversity, and I really want to ask you a couple of questions surrounding how Whisper has managed to lead the way in workplace diversity, because honestly, it's really, really commendable. Again, it's it's hard. Uh, it's hard work. Um, mm. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And I think um, for us, it's being it's it's just a relentless focus on what we're trying to achieve. And what we're trying to achieve is a business and a team of people that reflect society. Um, we want to we want the inside to reflect the world we live in. And the world we live in is colourful. It comes in different flavours. It's just kind of it, the gender ratio needs to be addressed. All of that sort of stuff is. It matters to us. Um, so you need to be relentlessly focused in what you're trying to achieve. And and as a business, as a senior management team, as a board, you need to commit to making it a priority. Once it becomes a priority and everyone understands right from the top, this is the direction of travel, people soon come on board. Um, you need to get the business engaged. Um, and once every area of the business understands that this is how we're going to do it and this is why it matters, um, it, it kind of gathers momentum and momentum brings change the other thing is to create role models mm. once you have a once you have a business where some of the senior management team or or areas of the business where diversity is hard to kind of attract talent um it again we have this kind of phrase that we've uh, borrowed where if you can't see it you can't be it so what we need to do is put people and role models in positions that are not often kind of easy to find. And once you start kind of really working hard and targeting those areas, you might be a kid coming through and going, well, maybe I could be a CEO because I can see Sunil doing it. Or maybe I could be a program editor because I've seen X do it. Or I could be a head of HR because I've seen Y do it. So, yeah, creating role models and putting people in positions where they're not necessarily you're seeing that sort of person, that background um, or that gender, um, is the key to it and, and look, it's hard it's really hard we we, we struggle with uh f- females in creative and editorial roles we're working super hard to, to, to readdress that balance internally and the team are doing a fantastic job of that and hopefully we're going to see some change and again kind of we're investing in talent from a, not just kind of shipping in talent but developing young talent from within that hopefully will either stay with us or, or go back into the industry at some point so, Sano, a lot of what you've touched on has been incredibly inspiring. And as a leader, I just want to know if somebody's listening to the podcast now, they're thinking about entering the industry, perhaps they feel like it's not an industry built for them uh, or they don't have the right qualifications or they just, you know, they see it as a male dominated industry, for example. What would be your one piece of advice for somebody who's thinking about getting into broadcasting or production? I think something um, that hit me pre-pandemic where we would have a lot of work experience students come in um, and often on a Friday by the end of their week they had with us, I'd kind of sit down with them for 15 minutes and over a period of time they'd always ask me the same question which is what, what sort of advice or what are you looking for and and over a period of time I actually refined what my answer would be and I, I kind of really got comfortable with it and I said look actually whether you're an intern 
um, or work experience or a runner on your day one in, in the industry, or whether you're the CEO or chairman or chairperson um, who's been in the industry for many, many years, it's, it's, it's pretty much two simple things like that anyone can do, and it's work hard and be a nice person. And if you, <laughs> it sounds so simple, but if you work hard and be a nice person, you're going to get on and people are going to want to work with you. So there'd be the two things that I would kind of focus on. And you get those right, everything else will fall into place. Well, Sunil, you certainly work really hard and you're a very, very nice person. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. A huge thank you to Sunil for spending the time with us today on the podcast and giving us all an insight into how Whisper was formed and the hard work and determination it takes to get a small business off the ground. If you're somebody listening and trying to crack into the industry, as Sunil says, persevere, but most importantly, be a nice person and work hard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.